Hello, everybody, and welcome to What the Health, a podcast dedicated to helping you navigate your way to better health. I'm Lena Lahire, certified personal trainer, nutrition coach, best-selling author, and psychology student at the University of Calgary. I'll be discussing topics that range from nutrition, fitness, lifestyle, and everything in between so you can feel confident in how to move towards better health physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's get into our topic for the day. Hello, everybody. Today's episode is very special as I have Dr. John Manzo joining me to talk about food and health from a sociological perspective. Dr. Manzo got his PhD in sociology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1993 and is currently an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Calgary. I am beyond excited to have him on the show to open up a dialogue about some extremely important topics when it comes to our health. Welcome to the show, Dr. Manzo. Thank you. You're my first guest. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm honored. I'm honored. H-O-N-O-U-R-E-D honored. Yes. Canadian spelling. Yes, indeed. Like as, as a naturalized Canadian citizen, this is, uh, this is uh, very exciting for me. I'm going to be, be very careful to pronounce things. <laughs> correctly so i shan't say composite i'll say composite if and when that if and when that becomes relevant so so explain to me and to our listeners what sociology is oh my god (laughs) what do you think sociology is you just took soci 201 i know but now i'm Oh my goodness! You. What is sociology? Well, dictionary definition is probably that sociology is the so, a scientific study of social social uh, uh, groups, institutions, and organizations. Um, I think of a soci- sociology as as uh, as a field of inquiry that looks at the individual's place relative to other persons. Mm-hmm. I like I like to think of that of, of it that way because that's that's germane to how I practice it. Right. So different from psychology where you're looking at the individual mm-hmm. themselves, yep. sociology yep. is kind of like that, but in relation to the rest of everyone else. Well, some psychology is as well. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the line between uh, between social psychology, social psychology and sociology is a, is a, is a very blurred one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, in fact, uh, there are those who would, who would uh, uh, among early American practitioners, in sociology, one of the most famous quotes was from someone whose name I can't remember, but a very important person uh, affiliated with the uh, Chicago School of Sociology, who said that all sociology is social psychology. And what he meant by that was, I think, I think that all sociology makes makes reference to the individual, even even macro level, even even demographers talk about individual and individual experience and which is individual choices when demography is the study of populations and it wouldn't seem like you'd be making reference to individuals there, but they count individuals. I mean, yep. ultimately their unit of analysis is either the individual or the individual household. Mm-hmm. So um, we're always we're always talking about collective behavior in, in sociology, but we're also referencing individual behavior. And to that extent, so- psychology and sociology have important overlaps but sociology and anthropology and sociology and history and sociology and political science and political science and history mm-hmm. and history and psychology. So all, so, all social sciences are, are interconnected. 
and uh, and uh, so that's that's why why for example where I did my undergrad, which is Reed College in Portland, Oregon, we were required. Like I was a history major. I did not come to sociology via sociology. I oh, came really? to it. Yeah, I took history as an undergrad. And at Reed, we were required to take what you would call options here. We call distribution requirements. Mm -hmm. And among those uh, was if you were a history major or for that matter, a poli sci major or an anthro major or a major in any of the social sciences, um, you had to take a lot of courses outside it. So for me, it was three years of courses outside of history. So I took one year of what was called Humanities 210, which is more complicated than I'm going to get into right now. And then I took one year of uh, anthropology and one year of sociology. And it was because of the because I was I was, uh, quote, required, unquote, to take a sociology class. I discovered that sociology was a lot more interesting to me than history was. Mm -hmm. But I was I was now well entrenched in a history major. So I did my uh, my honors thesis, which everyone at, at Reed College was required to do. Um, so it actually wasn't an honors thesis. It was just called a senior thesis. Okay. Um, my senior thesis uh, project was on a, on an American sociologist named Robert Park. And uh, it was via that experience that I got into graduate schools in sociology, despite having uh, no major in sociology. That's much more difficult to do now, by the way. Yes. I know because I've sat on grad studies in this very department. I know that we don't we don't honor disciplinary, uh, cross-disciplinary change the way I think it would have been once upon a time. So I went to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, which like all, I hate to use this term, but elite American doctoral programs did not admit people as master's students, but as doctoral students. Right. So I, I went at age 22 as a doctoral student at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And uh, I was a, um, I was also blessed uh, to be a university fellow which means that I had I had full non-service funding for the first year, which was a big deal. If you're a grad student, you don't have to teach courses or anything like that. That was really nice. I thought it was for four years. See, I had a guarantee of funding for four years, but not this free funding, free happy time funding. So I had to become a, a teaching assistant subsequently. But among my entering uh, fellows, none was a sociology major as an undergrad. They were in uh, math. One one guy, one one um, unbelievably incredibly brilliant person, was actually a chemistry major as an undergrad, who taken at Rice University, which is this very prestigious, very prestigious school, yeah. and he'd done his undergrad in chemistry. And so uh, there was a lot of a, a, a respect for people who'd done, let's say, an undergrad in history or women's studies or math or psych, psych psychology. Um, and we've, I think, sadly, we've lost that. But there is great, great um, uh, uh, cross. Th there, there is great value in, in being in being open to collaboration mm -hmm. and 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 adopting the the understandings of other social sciences. It's not. I mean, maybe it's the same way in the hard sciences. I I don't know. I. I don't know that much about the, yeah. the, about that that area of, of, of life, but I know that in social in the social sciences, because we are inherently sort of immature as as sciences, that we we have to sort of rely on the perspectives of if it's not psychology or anthropology or political science, that it might be 
lit- literature. It yeah. might be English literature. It might be it might be uh, kinesiology. I don't know, yeah. but uh, that's that makes sociology really interesting to me. Is that it's so um, it's so encompassing of different viewpoints, mm-hmm. and so that's really cool. Because there's so much overlap, isn't there, within everything? There is massive overlap, and so much of what we think we understand. I mean, who were who who was? You remember the three foundational. Founding Emil Durkheim. Yeah, it was Durkheim. Karl Marx. Karl Marx, who's who's often who's almost never thought of as as a uh, as a sociologist. He's he's I think to the person on the street, well, they would think that he's a communist, yeah. <laughs> number one. But if they know anything about his about his uh, the contributions he made to academia, it's in economics, right? Well, yeah, but history and political science and sociology and as well. Yeah, and of course, uh, Weber, uh, Max Weber was Max the Weber. third one, and yep. he wasn't a sociologist either because the very label did not exist back then. He was a political economist. And and Emil Durkheim was a psychologist, wasn't he? He was a sociologist okay. because he invented the term la sociologie, oh, right? Okay. Le, sorry, sorry for my francophone, for your francophone listeners. <laughs> I have never studied French formally because I wasn't raised in this country, but if but I je voudrais d'étudier le français maintenant. I would like to study French. But I'm but my brain is so full of other things that I don't know if I have the time for it. So what does a sociological perspective entail when looking at health from a food production level? Because I know that you touched mm-hmm. on this in uh-huh. Soci two oh one intro. Yep. Uh, particularly What's going on in low-income countries mm-hmm. with food production, consumption in high-income countries, mm-hmm. and also obesity? What's going on globally? Well, um, I don't know about the the obesity aspect, but I can say when we when we bring a sociological perspective to something, we should be able to see the the importance of individual choice in affecting. Um, effects that are outside of us that that so when we when we make a decision as consumers for example mm-hmm. um that decision is impactful in many ways outside of us it has uh going from now let me just see if i can do this off the top of my head going from micro to macro mm-hmm. on a macro level perspective it entails interaction with uh with with a, a shopkeeper or an employee at a at a business that itself that interaction that situated encounter is is subjectable to analysis and that's the kind of thing that i do in my own work i look at interpersonal communication so there's there's an interpersonal level of communication as well that employee is is, is embedded in an organization a, uh, a business that is also sociologically relevant mm-hmm. that business is embedded within a, a larger economic uh, sphere that includes uh, suppliers and 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 buyers and and networks of of institutions and and, and persons, mm-hmm. and then beyond that, there's a geopolitical uh, aspect that's very important. Whereby whereby those products are almost never. If you live in Canada, those products almost never come from Canada. No, they almost always come from the U.S. primarily, but also Mexico and in this part of the world, uh, Latin America. Mm-hmm. Um, they might come from as far away as India or New Zealand or someplace like that. So, with those those purchasing decisions that that we make, I mean, I'm drinking right now coffee, 
And this coffee is obviously not grown in Canada. Mm-hmm. It is grown in. Uh, could you take a look at my bag there and see what its what its origin is? I know it's it's from Starbucks, but that's that wasn't my choice. A student purchased it, <laughs> gave gave me that for a Christmas present. Yeah, well, it was packaged in Seattle. Yeah, that doesn't that that's 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 a bit of a that's a bit of greenwashing right there. Yeah. The fact that it's packaged in Seattle doesn't mean it was obviously was not produced there. It doesn't say. Could I take a look at the bag? Oh, Costa Rica. Costa Rica. Costa Rica. Yeah. That's that. that very excellent example. Mm-hmm. So all the coffee I have right now is Costa Rican because mm-hmm. my coffee at home is a Phil and Sebastian coffee from mm-hmm. from Costa Rica. Yeah. Well, that's of necessity. I mean, if you want to drink coffee, you've got to be drinking it from the global south, unless you're buying coffee grown in Hawaii, which is not even one one hundredth of one percent of world production. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's coffee grown in Hawaii, but but for all intents and purposes, there is none. Mm-hmm. All coffee comes from what's what's referred to as the global south, mm-hmm. which is to say lesser income countries, right, and uh, or lower income countries. And so we, as, cons- as, cons- as a consumer, I'm interested in knowing or hoping that the coffee that, I, that I've purchased has been produced using um, a, not only environmentally sustainable um, uh, techniques, but also uh, socially and economically sustainable ones such that the farmer uh, who grew the coffee is paid a fair, a fair price for his coffee. That makes coffee more expensive, by mm-hmm. the way, but that's we're paying the true cost of it that is not the case with just about anything else we get from 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 lower income countries everything is 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 grown cheap, cheaply and sold cheaply and uh impacts not only you know our our stomachs and and, and our our bodies but it has massive impacts on um on the lives of the of, of the persons who grow those crops and who uh, who live in those countries that grow those crops, whether they're farmers or not, mm-hmm. because going getting back to your your uh, your question about about how uh, could you re- could you re- repeat the question? Yeah. So, what exactly is happening in low income countries in terms of production mm-hmm. compared to what's happening in high income countries with consumption? Yeah. Uh, the uh, you you might recall this this spiel from my socio two hundred one, but that by the way that sociology two hundred one at the University of Calgary <laughs> taught by Doctor M A N Z O, and uh, and you'll learn about this if you take my course. Um, and even if you don't take it, you're going to learn about it right now because I'll tell you what the argument is. The the it's not only an argument; it's a fact that um, that lower income countries provide food for a global supermarket mm-hmm. and at the global supermarket the the uh the, the the produce goes to the highest bidder this is not distributed equitably to those with the greatest need rather they are sold to those from who, who, who bid the highest for those for those foods and that means that um that uh in principle, I mean, I'm not saying that this happens everywhere, but it certainly was an issue in the 1970s when the book Food First came out and mm-hmm. and highlighted a lot of these a lot of these issues around around the impact of uh, what was then what would become known as globalization on on hunger and uh, and uh, so food that's grown in say Mexico does not go to feed Mexicans; it goes to feed mostly Americans. Because they're the ones who could command the highest price for it. 
Moreover, that food is not grown by Mexican farmers. It's grown by international agribusiness firms. And one of the biggest ones is a Canadian company called McCain. Mm-hmm. And they are, I, did, I had no idea that McCain is all, it's not, they're not as big as, say, Nestle, but they're huge. Right. And they do supply food, especially frozen food all around the world. And uh, and so um, so those companies, the the DeCamps, the the Nestle's, the the uh, uh, the the McCain's of the world, mm-hmm. um, are are snatching that food from the mouths of, of of persons in lower income countries and selling them to you and me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's one way in which uh, obviously that affects consumption patterns because. It's so much cheaper to get food from food grown in, in, in countries that have um, effectively infinite growing seasons. Right. And that's good. And in fact, uh, in fact, uh, it is more cost effective to grow food in, say, uh, Chile and ship it here than to grow food in greenhouses in Alberta. Mm-hmm. It's more energy efficient. I was shocked to find this out that there isn't there the, the argument around energy usage usage for shipping actually is is moot because it takes so much energy to grow food in a cold climate in a greenhouse that those those cancel each other out. Mm-hmm. I think our, our our concern should be whether we're contributing to world hunger right. by our by our purchasing practices and whether the the people from whom we are buying things are, are being paid fairly for them. And in most cases, they're not. Yeah. In most cases, they're not. I mean, we're, we, we rely on, on, on cheap labor. And, uh, and whether it's, it's, it's with respect to food or consumer products, um, we've come to rely on those. I mean, I am, I am bedecked in, in clothing that is probably yeah. uh, assembled in, in uh, Bangladesh or someplace like that. Yeah. And uh, and so are you, by the yep. way. So yep. oh, unless yeah. we're unless we're we're delivering this podcast completely naked, which we're not <laughs> doing right now because it's winter, then we're 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 experiencing this as well, and it's it's really depressing. Yeah. It's very depressing to me to, to know that that you either have to be incredibly smart and have a lot of money mm-hmm. to make uh, to make uh, sustainable purchasing decisions, or you're ultimately in some way contributing to human misery. Mm-hmm. And that's that's that that's that's sociology contributing to human misery for a century now. <laughs> the optimistic view of Dr. Yeah, Brown. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that I'm still a happy guy. <laughs> and you know why? Because I don't have kids. <laughs> that brings me to an interesting point about being treated fairly and the topic of fair trade. Yeah. So can you explain to the listeners what fair trade is? If it's important, why it's important? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think it. I think it is, and a lot of people have have come to know the term fair trade with reference to coffee. Yes. Which refers to the commitment of purchasers to to pay a fair price for coffee, and that that is uh, facilitated not only because the purchasers purchasers want to be want to do the right thing, but by uh, collectives forming mm-hmm. the. Uh, Wheat pool in in Canada is a good example of a fair trade, okay. uh, a fair trade promoting organization that that uh, would say that in order to to so in order that all of our growers receive a fair price, we're going to uh, to uh, collect all of our product as one and demand a price for it, so that we'll all receive a fair price. That's the way that fair trade is done. That's the way it's done in the coffee uh, in the coffee world. 
But fair trade matters not only in coffee or wheat. It also matters for... Um, bananas. for uh, Bananas, thank you. I mean, all sorts of agri- agricultural products are now sold under a fair trade model. And that fair trade fair trade model is 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 developed and enforced by the growers not by the buyers now that is contrary to and very different different from sorry i'm i'm uh i'm 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 pounding on the table which i found out i should not be doing damn it <laughs> so i but i feel strongly about this um that's very different by the way that's very different from another model of coffee purchasing which is direct trade okay which um, which also rewards rewards uh, growers, but does so via a, a direct buying relationship between, say, a roaster and a particular grower, which is also a very good model, but which is which leaves a lot of growers in the dust because their product isn't good enough. Mm. So, as a coffee drinker, I am as as a coffee connoisseur, I should say, not one who is interested in social equity, but as somebody who's interested in good good quality coffee. I'm more interested in in direct trade. I want to see direct trade on the bag and not fair trade. Fair trade ensures that the farmer farmers the farmers get a fair price, but has not to do with whether the product is of high quality. Direct trade assures that the farmer gets a good price. The 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 person who developed this lot gets a good price for it because it's say it's award winning, and that the the product's going to be good. Uh, they're both good ways of they're both good, good things that purchasers that the consumer should be aware of. But if it comes to buying, let's say for whatever reason I'm buying cotton, I don't know why I would buy cotton because I, I, I'm studying. I'm suddenly I want to get around the issue of sweatshops in Bangladesh and people dying and in, in industrial disasters there. And I've decided to make my own pants, so I'm going to import my own cotton. Well, then I I want to know that that cotton is is is. Uh, produced in a fair trade environment right. and that the, the, the grower the grower not just the, the grower because co- cotton is cotton is cotton mm-hmm. it's not like coffee where there's going to be a huge difference between this crop and this crop yeah. and i want to know that 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 uh, the growers of the cotton are being uh, recompensed fairly mm-hmm. or compensated fairly mm-hmm. um and uh, one way of ensuring that is by uh, by their having a fair fair trade sort of it's it's a, it's analogous to a union Okay. It's very analogous to a union where they're collectivizing to to support their rights. Yeah. yeah. So what other kind of hot topic foods are should we be focusing on when it comes to being produced in these low income countries? I know I brought I was quinoa just going to say class. I was just going to say quinoa is I I did, I had no idea what a disaster quinoa is. It's Horrible. it's terrifying, but I would I would look askance at anything that has suddenly come on on a new new name superfoods. Avocados. Uh, avocados are another potential disaster. Yeah, and it terrifies me when when something becomes uh, trendy and it's not say awful or or uh, or or something that had been uh, tossed aside that was treated as garbage once upon a time that we now appreciate because it's very nutrient dense. Mm-hmm. That's good. Not good is it was, there's another, uh, there's another, uh, tropical, uh, crop that, um, that's become very, Oh, acai. Oh, acai. Acai. Yeah. There are all these things that, that, that in, say indigenous people in what is now Brazil have been consuming that they cannot consume anymore because the international, 
supermarket has descended upon them and has taken all of their 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 food stuff from them you have to be aware of this around the the impact of consuming quinoa grown in grown in grown in south america and acai grown in brazil and avocados grown in mexico and and how how impactful your choices as a consumer are and uh it's like I say, it's it's bloody depressing mm-hmm. because are, are we going to be left with only being able to consume local products? Well, that's fine if you live in the lower mainland or California or Oregon or somewhere that has has a, a, a ample uh, ample ample food supplies. But if we did that, <laughs> if we did that in Alberta, we'd be eating nothing but beef and no. petroleum. <laughs> <laughs> we'd be eating we'd be eating a. Uh, I want to say I lived in uh, I did my postdoc a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Kentucky yeah. and there we, we we would be eating tobacco. Yeah. T- tobacco is the is the local cash crop. So that's not something corn. you Corn, we'd have corn here as well. Tab- would we? Yeah, Tabor Alberta. Oh yeah. Is there enough for everyone? No. Cuz most corn that is grown, this is a this is a a, a fascinating uh, topic. There's a book and a, and a and a documentary about it uh, uh that that came out called King Corn okay. which is about American American specifically American agricultural policy and how under Earl Butts uh the decision was made to encourage farmers to grow corn and only corn so a state like Iowa in the 1950s or 1940s had a vast plethora of crops that were grown including fruit mm-hmm. so they had I, I I this shocks me now having driven through Iowa or or or, uh, or Indiana, my home state, to have uh, to 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 maybe witness this that they grew apples and and berries and plums and all manner of, of crop. Mm-hmm. Now there are only two crops that are grown predominantly in Iowa: corn, corn and soy, corn, corn and soybeans. Yeah. Two crops that have vast industrial uses, uh, and they do because of subsidies, not because they're useful. Mm. For example, high fructose corn syrup is a is a is a is, is a, it's a byproduct, but it takes a lot of effort to to produce. It takes it took science to 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 realize that you could you could get fructose from corn, and it's not easy to make. It's not easy to it's not easy to produce. But they needed to create markets for all this corn that they were paying farmers to grow, mm. and so that's why HFCS is in so many products in the U.S. because they need a market for it. So there are domestic crops too that are incredibly bad for the environment in, in fact apocalyptically bad because a lot of that corn is not going to feed humans it's going to feed animals cattle, cattle who are not ruminants who should not be consuming corn yes and so you have to give them corn you give them corn and so the phrase corn fed beef became thought of as it's got all these positive mm-hmm. implications and and, and p- positive the the valence around it is very 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 positive mm-hmm. and 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 pure and you know, God bless America. Actually, corn is not supposed to be corn. I mean, I mean, I mean, beef is not supposed to be corn fed. No, it is not. It should be grass fed. Yes, it should. And uh, and so, but and so, it, it was not decided that cows really love this stuff. That's why we're going to feed it to them. It was more. Make it them, was. It was make them fat. To make them fat, but why? Why do we give them corn? Because we have vast oversupply of That's corn. True. So we have to do something with it. So let's feed it to the cows. And then they discovered that 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 cows fattened on, on corn had beautiful marbled 
fat, which is succulent. I can say as as a as an immigrant from the U.S. that American corn-fed beef is delicious, but it's also incredibly high in saturated fat because cows aren't supposed to be eating that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's not good for the cows either. Mm-hmm. So they have to be fed, like, pumped full of antibiotics. And, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so so what I'm saying is that we should all just stop eating. <laughs> I think I think we should, we should consume an oxygen diet. <laughs> and even that's gonna have its, it's working for me well. <laughs> yeah you know that's really interesting it it's almost as if it's like an inverse robin hood phenomena where it's like we're stealing from the poor to feed the rich yeah 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 right and yes that's exactly true it, it's yeah. It's amazing when we look at sustainability from an environmental perspective that we mm-hmm. don't look at it from a human perspective. No, we as don't. Well. Uh, we don't. And by the way, that that model of sailing from the poor to, a poor to feed the rich has been around since the 15th century. So <laughs> it's 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 been it, it's part of empire building, right. and that you you find populations that you can you can conquer and then make them your and enslave them. Mm-hmm. And uh, or kill them like like the Belgians did in Central Africa, mm-hmm. and for which they for whatever reason have been let, let off the hook. But you know there were tens of millions of Africans murdered by in the name of King Leopold of Belgium, and and uh, and uh, th- that that's that's world history. Mm-hmm. That as a matter of fact, I would say you could argue that that pattern goes back to be before the. Year one, I mean, with with the the Romans and the the Mongols, and it's always been about conquest and 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 that sort of thing. And that's um, if there is a human nature, that's it. Mm-hmm. That's human nature. So you know what? <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's but it's true. I don't trust people, and neither should you. <laughs> what do we do in terms of these quote unquote superfoods, or you know, I like to think of it as the millennial diet. I guess I guess we're past yeah. millennials now. Yeah. What, what's this next generation called? Well, you're you're millennial, my I'm, dear. I so, am millennial, yeah. but what is the generation after me? Dead. <laughs> They're the, they're, the, they're the dead generation. They're the generation is going to fight in Iran. <laughs> so so get used to it, everyone. <laughs> in terms of consumption, though, it's not like we're not saying to completely stop eating these foods yeah. because that's not going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it's about reducing the quantity. I, th- I think it's about education. You know, um, one of the most nutritious, nutrient-dense, delicious, and... Uh, 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 and I want to say usable, uh, uh, not diverse, but uh, uh, something with many uses. Um, what's the word? Sorry for our listeners, we're blanking on the word. We're we're. If anyone knows, call one triple eight podcasts and let us know what the word is. Um, it's uh, it has many uses. Right. Uh, uh, is flax? Well, yes. that's grown here. And it's and it's it's incredibly. I mean, flax oil, mm-hmm. flax seed, mm-hmm. flax seed is the is is the is the the greatest source in nature for linoleic acid, which yeah. reduces cholesterol. Mm-hmm. It is a superfood, and it's grown right here. So let's let's valorize our our local superfoods before we start invading South America and taking all their quinoa away. Mm-hmm. Let's start. Let's think about what we can what we can what we what we have here. Uh, that doesn't require us to 
you know, take 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 uh, take from the poor. Exploit. Exploit. Yeah, mm-hmm. Ex- exploitation is should be avoided. It, it's our. I mean, our first concern should be do no harm. You know, mm-hmm. we're not medical doctors, but still. Um, so that's one one way of thinking about it is that if we want it, well, one thing we have to get away from is is the the label superfood. Yes. Because. Uh, many foods are nutrient dense, but we don't think of them as as superfoods. Sweet potatoes are are are, are unbelievably nutrient dense. Potatoes are potatoes themselves. Crazy. Thank you, thank you. They are. They are. Yes. They they have. They're incredibly delicious as well. Yeah. Fiber. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. This is what I'm trying to convince my my partner of Javid, if you're listening to this, that we we have to think about nutrient density, not just caloric density. Oh, so yeah, uh get me so calories. yeah yeah um and uh and so so uh potatoes are a great example of an incredibly nutrient dense very very good adaptable uh food that uh provides satiety mm-hmm. and is just wonderful yeah so let's let's talk about rye let's talk about mm-hmm. about potatoes mm-hmm. let's talk about flax let's mm-hmm. We can we can have a conversation about beef and bison and wheat and grains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, we we are we're we're very blessed, and we have to start think recognizing how blessed we are that we we have in our purview, as does everyone in North America or 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 Northern Europe, Mm -hmm. has access to uh, a lot of wonderful nutrient dense foods that don't require exploitation Mm -hmm. and uh and that would in in a perfect world they would be eating they they already do eat acai in brazil but they would be the only ones consuming it because it wouldn't require uh 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 shipping to the the global north Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that would be wonderful do i follow those examples i kind of i think of myself as being a pretty responsible consumer i definitely buy a lot less of these 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 so-called superfoods um i try and actually limit my husband and i like we might eat one avocado a week good for you um and it's always organic it's fair trade yeah yeah. you pay more Uh but you right like it's making these small changes and just being aware unfortunately they don't grow avocados in canada no and uh there are things that just don't grow just don't grow here if you want to buy it you're either going to buy it from California yeah. or it's going to be shipped in from Latin America. Yeah. And in, in Europe, the issue is Southern Europe, which is expensive, mm-hmm. or Morocco, which is cheap. Mm-hmm. So all their oranges come from Morocco and Tunisia. Mm-hmm. And that's just the way the world the world works. The funny thing is that a lot of the, 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 the global south countries are astonishingly well endowed with food mm-hmm. like this is this is what's my, my ex-husband is from trinidad which should have um which should be a cornucopia of of a beautiful locally grown product virtually everything they eat is shipped in it's kind of like i don't know if i talked about hawaii in your class yeah. but it's kind of like that where where you're living in an environment where you should be uh independent with 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 respect to food, but everything comes in on a barge. Mm-hmm. So what they call curry is tin madras curry from a from a from from powder or spam. Well, they don't. Yeah, they don't. Well, spam spam in Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. that's that's a great example. Yeah. But you know, in in Trinidad, um, even though, like I say, 
it's a tropical country that should have vast food resources. They don't drink fresh milk. They only drink Tetra Pak milk or, or, or canned wow. milk. And so, uh, uh, which is really weird. And I think, but I just saw a, a, a kid push, uh, walking his cow across the street when we were trying to get to Morocco's beach and we had to wait because this, this kid is, is sl- slapping the cow with a, with a stick to get it to cross the street. Yeah. And I thought, oh, there's, there's a bucolic scene if I ever saw one. And I'm wondering, where's the milk? <laughs> where, where, where does the milk come from? And it comes from the grocery, you know, and, and, and you go and you buy milk and, like I say, uh, the aseptic packaging. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and uh, another, but in, even, an even better example is because my, my current bow is from Pakistan originally, and uh, which was used to be part of India before the partition. Mm-hmm. And many of his relatives still live in, in Mumbai and uh, Muslims. Uh, and uh, India is a an absolute fan. It, it, it's, a, it's unbelievably rich. And it's got like food traditions going back 3,000 years. And, uh, and they, they grow food there. So they should be the most powerful nation on earth in a way mm-hmm. because they're it, it's incredibly richly endowed with with food stuff but they're not mm-hmm. instead they're exploited and they've been exploited since since the british conquest yeah. and um and uh, it kind of it, it's it's kind of sickening yeah yeah you know it also brings up an interesting topic of we th- we have this view of what foods are healthy for us yeah yeah but we're not even really thinking about our ancestry and where we grew up and yeah. right like for example um it's like with the keto diet yeah you know, something like potatoes would be villainized yeah yeah you're like if you're a, a european like you're you're probably do quite well on potatoes or if you're from peru where bolivia. they come from bolivia yeah and uh no potatoes are, are part of human potatoes are i mean the thing about about keto is that I understand the the argument that it makes, and I'm sure for people for people it works to lose weight, but the issue is I mean for me the issue is for someone who was forced to lose weight because I had a stroke two years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, I wasn't I I didn't think of myself as 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 overweight, but one of the things that you want to do in order to in, 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 to reduce the likelihood that you're going to have another cardiovascular event is to lose weight. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I was, I, I started to take weight loss seriously and I managed to do it. And, uh, it wasn't by going keto. It was by eating less. And the fact is that caloric restriction works, whether you are on a keto diet or you're just eating less food, but I would not want to live in a world where I couldn't eat potatoes. Oh, it'd be horrible. I don't want to, I, I, I would, I would kill myself. And anytime, you know, you flag something like an apple as, as bad and, but you can eat a piece of bacon. Yeah, I know. You're just like, what? Apples aren't even high glycemic. I thought they were, but they're not. Well, they're, they're actually incredibly healthy. Yeah, they're full of fiber. Yeah. And, 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 and all these, and they're delicious. And they're delicious. Yeah. Um, so that about wraps up our episode for the day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, wrapping it all up, what would you like to leave our listeners with to critically think about for themselves to be a, a wise consumer and to view health as just beyond 
you know, what the media is telling them yep. to consume. And what what well, would you like? Hey, you just wrapped it up pretty well for me. Mm-hmm. Recognize that your your individual decisions impact other uh, other people. Not only the person from whom you're buying something, but everyone whom that person is attached to. And uh, that ultimately is the entire human race. Mm-hmm. So your, your, your individual decisions are impactful. And you have power, whether you realize it or not. Mm-hmm. You have vast power, especially as a consumer in a wealthy country. Your power is vast. Use it wisely. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show it was such a pleasure to have you. it was a pleasure any anytime you want if you want to hear my opinions about the calgary flames i'll be happy to share that as well <laughs> all right take care everyone bye-bye thank you so much for tuning into today's podcast i hope you enjoyed our discussion and gained better insight into how you can be the healthiest version of yourself that you can be don't forget to subscribe to my channel on itunes And please leave me a review so we can get this message of better health out there. Have a great day and remember, you are powerful over your health.